Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 300 of So You Want to Be a Writer. Oh, (laughs) Yes, my name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a fabulously supportive writing community. And I'm here with my partner in crime and co-host, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series. In our three hundredth episode, Al, how are you, Al? <laughs> well, I'm pretty excited that we reached three hundred. Did we actually say what we were? This is the "So You Want to Be a Writer" podcast. In case oh, yeah. you've arrived for your very first visit, <laughs> we are in um, obviously celebrating right now our three hundredth episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm excited. I'm excited. excited. Look, I haven't been fair to middling for at least three I weeks know. now. Now what's I going on? I don't know it. if I can sustain this pace. Though. Yeah, you can. I'm not sure. Yeah, you can. Not sure. All right. Okay, I can. Did you ever think we'd get to 300 when this was a mere <laughs> idea in our heads? No. no. Mm. Did I ever think we'd get to 300 when we were into our first year or our second year? <laughs> no. <laughs> and yet here we are, 300 episodes. Yes. That is a lot of talking, Valerie. A lot of you talking. You and I have been talking for a long time. Yes. And none of it would be possible without our wonderful listeners because, no. you know, your feedback, your support, the fact that you actually listen. <laughs> the fact that you tune in to Val and I have these highly intelligent conversations every week <laughs> is just extraordinary. <laughs> and we also want to thank you because because of you guys, it's uh, this podcast has spawned its own book, also called So You Want to Be a Writer. And um, it's been out for a couple of months now, and it's great to get all of the feedback from it. Thank you to everyone who came to the big book launch at Vivid. And we want to give a big shout out to Charmaine, who left us a review, a five-star review on Goodreads. Hooray. And Charmaine said, in What an this- excellent present for our 300th yes. episode. Thank you so much, Charmaine. That's Absolutely. brilliant. Uh, Charmaine says, Initially sceptical, this book is a must-have for all writers with busy lives. Rather than leading the reader up the proverbial garden path, the authors have created a guide that is practical, realistic, and inspirational, with chapters such as dealing with other people, how to make time to write, and my favourite, how to be creative when you're tired. This book (laughs) is like a friend who understands the compulsion to write. Finishing with a motivational boost using quotes from the hundreds of writers the authors have interviewed on their podcast – this book is an important touchstone. Oh, how nice is that? Oh, so nice. Thank you, Charmaine. I love, oh, Charmaine, and I love the fact that you love how to be creative when you're tired because yes. I spend my whole life in that state and I just, <laughs> I'm really, really pleased that you can also yeah. relate to that. So that's fantastic. I don't think we've ever been called a touchstone before. So thank no. you, Charmaine. That's really, I know, it's kind of given me a little, I've a little, got a little bit of a goosebump about being a touchstone. Mm, it's mm. very exciting. And, very. of course, if you already have a copy of the book for yourself, we would love it if you could leave us a review on Goodreads uh, because then other people can discover it as well. Yes, so that's we right. put a lot of blood, sweat and tears and a heart and soul into this book and we hope that Not you find to it mention this. 300 episodes of talking, let's yes. face it. yes. <laughs> 300 episodes of talking. Hours and hours of talking. (laughs) All right, let's move on to the world of writing and publishing this week. You have a link for us from the Creative Pen, right? I do. I do. And you know what? It's a timely link for us from the Creative Pen, particularly given our conversation last week about the fact that I had, you know, that hot mess of a first Mm -hmm. draft that I have finished. 
Um, and of course, then Joanna Penn, who is, a, you know, her website, The Creative Pen, is a sensational spot um, for writers, you know, looking for advice about everything from self-publishing to, you know, getting a story together to doing all sorts of different things. Um, she's been around for a long time. I yep. first saw her on, uh, discovered her on social media about oh, 10 years ago when I was first on, mm. you know, social media. So she has, she she walks the walk, talks the talk, does the stuff. Um, but this is a little uh, guest post that's been written um, for her site and it's called Writing Tips, Four Ideas to Help Authors Revise a Book's First Draft. Um, and it's uh, written by an editor called Harrison Demchik. Um, and it just offers some suggestions of how to, you know, make that revision process for your book easier. Because I think, I, I mean, I do actually remember very, very clearly the first time that I finished a novel, full stop, you know, a first draft of a novel. And, uh, you know, I was pretty excited by myself as one is. And I um, then I knew I kind of had this vague idea that I had to do something with it. Like I knew mm. that there needed to be some editing work. But at that stage, I didn't really understand what that meant. Yep. I thought it was kind of like moving sentences a bit and changing full stops and, and doing all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't until I actually underwent my very first intensive um structural edit that I really understood the process of editing and how incredibly painful it can actually be because <laughs> it really is. Um, but this this uh, post goes through the process a bit and one of the things that Harrison says is that is exactly that first mistake that I made. Uh, revision isn't pebbles in a stream. Um, you know, the, he, the, his point is what happens when you throw a pebble into a stream? Not very much. There's a small splash, the pebble disappears, the water carries on around it. And a lot of authors try to revise this way. They will address the surface. So we'll look at the line of dialogue. We might sort of change a bit of a scene. We might think, oh, that's not really working, whatever. Um, so we do the surface stuff, but we don't, you know, we don't make those big changes that even if we recognise might need to be made because we fully understand that making a big change means making a big change from start to finish. You can't make a big change halfway through a book and not have to change the ending, for example. Mm. Um, so it's, you know, and, and it is true that, you know, uh, and Harrison makes this point, you know, small edits do add up. Um you know, changing lines here, change, you know, sometimes all it takes is a line or two at the start to really set up an ending in a much better way. Yeah. But the reality is um, that most novels, particularly early novels, when you're starting out with it, are probably going to need more substantial editing than that, uh, which means that you're going to have to look at the character arc, you're going to have to look at the logic issues, you're going to have to look at, you know, the big stuff um, and those moving, tweaking sentences is not going to do that for you. Um, as Harrison says, you you can't throw pebbles into the stream. You have to divert the mm. course of the water and it hurts to do that. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is a lot of people don't even realise that that's what's required. I meet so many people who say that they've finished their manuscript and it's ready for submission to a publisher now because I, I've sent it off to an editor and you know they've, and so it's it it must be ready now. And I ask what kind of editor, and really they've just sent it off to a proofreader. But it's yeah. it's actually a complete waste of money to send it off to a proofreader at that point because it needs the structural edit first. There's no point playing with all the pretty words if you haven't no. got the fundamentals right. So do not pay for a proofreader till you actually get your structural edit done, you've rewritten it or you've revised it or whatever it is, and it really is at that final point. I mean, unless you've got lots of 
cash to splash around, of course. You can do whatever you like. But if, like most people, you want to – you know, make the most make the most of um, where you do spend your money. Get the proofreading done at the very end, and make sure you get the structural edit done first. I, I'm confounded by the number of people who don't realise how important a structural edit is. I, well, I don't think it's necessarily that they don't understand how important it is. I just don't think they understand what it is. I didn't mm, know what it was yeah. until I had to have one. And then I was like, really? Mm. 17 pages of notes? Really? <laughs> Where do I start? And knowing and understanding that the, you get those 17 pages of notes and you realise that what you're looking at here is if you change this in paragraph three, mm. it means that every single time that particular thing comes up throughout the book, you have to change it, which is a huge yeah. thing. And I think it's, and this is something that that Harrison addresses in point two. One of the greatest challenge of the re, challenges of the revision process is that it feels like it should require less work than writing the first draft, not more. Mm-hmm. So you feel like, well, I've written this draft, so now all I have to do is, you know, massage it and fix it. Um, in actual fact, you know, sometimes the editing process requires more work than actually writing the book in the first yeah, place. Sure. Um, and, you know, he says, you know, does that mean that you should be expected to rewrite your novel from scratch? Well, no, but you should be willing to if necessary. Now, I was asked at one stage, I had a book that I had written, a manuscript. Um, it was an adult novel uh, that I wrote. It was probably 10 years ago now. And one of the things was I, was I was really struggling with the edit of it. Like I was moving things and things were happening, but not, you know, it still wasn't quite coming together. And I was asked by my agent at the time, did I want to start again? Did I want to actually just put that whole thing aside and rewrite the whole novel, same characters, et cetera, mm. from scratch? And at that stage, I just didn't know how to do that. I didn't, I mean, now I probably would say yes to that because Mm. I would understand that what was being asked of me was more than was going to be manageable within, you know, like, you know, we talked last week about Alan Baxter and his, you know, broken novel. I think that, you know, the problem was that that particular novel in its, the form it was in at that point was a broken novel, but I didn't recognize it as such. My agent did. And, and, you know, she, she was a very lovely woman Mm. and she was saying, she kept saying to me, is this the book that you want to be your first novel? Is this what you want to put out as your first published work? You only get one chance at a debut. Hmm. And um, I just, I was kind of like, yeah, but I just don't know how to do this. I don't know how to rewrite this. I would have to write, and what I ended up doing was writing something totally different. I yeah. said, I, I can't take something that I have already what felt like it had come to fruition for me mm. and then and take those characters and just put them into a slightly I just couldn't do it you know I just, yeah. and maybe now I could um so what I did was just go you know what I'm putting that aside and I'm going to write something new and that's what I did and that was good um that was me some people are completely capable of just going no I totally understand what you mean I'm going to going to put this aside and rewrite the novel as though it's new for me but with Mm. these characters um but you know so the the point is that sometimes that's what you need to do and it it's the worst feeling in the world to think but I've just put like months and months and years into this first draft (laughs) and you're telling me that it's you know well you know well it's fine but why don't you just rewrite the whole thing like Mm. it's painful to think that the fact that somebody's willing to put enough work into you to walk you through that is actually a huge vote of confidence but you don't necessarily see that yeah at the time 
you know, once I did a structural edit of a nonfiction book and um, I was pointing out things that didn't make sense or, um, you know, had to change obviously. And, and at, like you say, if you change that in paragraph three, there is a domino effect to the rest oh, of the book. all right? the way through. But yep. this writer only changed it in paragraph three. So she uh, would only take it where I mentioned it the first time and not think about the impact. Oh, I just. Oh, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes. um, we had quite a few conversations. Yes. Um, yes. All right. So, yeah, that's an excellent post on um, thecreativepen.com and we will put the link in the show notes, which you can find at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. Now, because it's our 300th episode, we have oh, a cracker of a competition this week. Cracker? Exactly. Cracker. It's yes. a cracking competition. It's a massive 30-book pack. Usually we give away three books, but this week we're giving away 30 different books to one person. To one person. Yep. You could win practically. Well, it's either a library in the mm. making or it's every Christmas and birthday gift that you're going to require yep. for the next year. you got to right enter. Yep, 30 yep. books. And we only chose yep. 30 books because we couldn't actually do 300 books because that was just too much for us to cope with. So <laughs> this massive prize of 30 books will be shipped to you if you win, obviously. Um so to be in the running, you need to tell us what's the number one thing you've learned from listening to the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast. And for details on how to enter, go to writercenter.com.au slash win and you will be able to be in the running for this massive 30-book pack. And there's some really good books in this pack, many of them from people who we've interviewed in the past, Um I'm not going to read them all because there's 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 just so many. Everyone. No, from... but we will put the we put a picture of it in the yes. um in the Facebook pod, uh, podcast community group. Yes. Now the thing is that because this is our 300th episode mm. and because we need a parade parade, we're relying on you for a parade, people. <laughs> so you have to um, answer the question: What's the number one thing you've learnt from listening to the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast? But we're asking you to be a little bit creative with your entries. So we're looking for entries through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, we've got a hashtag Valinal three hundred. Like, how can you resist us with yes. our own hashtag like that? <laughs> um, and we're looking for creative entries um, into the into the competition um, of uh, in answering that particular question. Um, so please go and have a look at how to enter please mm -hmm. enter use the hashtag follow the instructions we would love to see what you come up with and we would particularly love to know what is the number one thing you've learned from listening to the so you want to be a writer podcast yes. is it finish the damn book could mm -hmm. it be that is it word of the week i know yes, we had a bit yes, of a discussion there last week about people have favorite words of the week i mm -hmm. just want to put that out there mm -hmm. they do is it that banoffee pie is better than chocolate you, you are on such a losing streak with that because numbers are on my side. I am going to crush you with my team chocolate. So what is the number one thing you've learned? Be creative. Give us a shout out on social media because we really want to see it. And I'm judging people. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sitting here. Mm -hmm. I want you to imagine me like on the voice panel. I am sitting <laughs> here. Why am I turning my chair for you, baby? Yes. And seriously, it's worth getting up there 
and taking part because this book pack includes limited edition J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter. It includes Michael Crichton. It includes Neil Gaiman. It includes um, uh, Gary Disher, Deb Abella, fantastic so we, are giving, we are giving you awesome stuff. So please, mm. yeah, like, and, and let us see you. We really want to see you. We love you. Yes. We want to see you. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Um, now, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? Well, you know what? I'm really fascinated to, to see what you've come up with for our 300th episode. Like oh. you are going to have to really bring the bacon for this one, baby. The pressure. I oh, know. Oh, but when there I is thought pressure. of this word of the week, I didn't. It didn't occur to me it was the 300th episode, but I'm just going to own it anyway. It is intromission, I-N-T-R-O, like intro, mission, intromission. Uh-huh. Seriously? This yeah. is what you've come up with. For our 300th episode, you are giving me <laughs> intromission. Do you know it? Righto. I do not know it. There you go. Impress me. I'm okay. Ready. This is not to be confused with intermission, which is the break you have in the middle of a play or movie. Intromission is the act of putting something inside something else. There's an obvious meaning which it refers to, and I'm not going to go into detail here. But you can I also say, "I believe you chose this for our 300." You can it's a also bit saucy. You can also say, "The vampire's bite on Bella's neck can only be called an intromission." I'm just. <laughs> Do you know what? I really honestly feel we should just fast forward right now at this point. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Intromission. I like it. Thank you for that. That's You're lovely. welcome. All right. So who do we have for episode 300, Writer in Residence? <laughs> I'm not coping with that. Um Oh, well, I have I have brought to the party a special guest and I'm quite excited about this. I have brought to the party Carolyn Overington and we have had the best conversation. Please listen to this one. It was a cracker. Um, we have had a conversation about... Um, about writing fiction, about writing non-fiction and features and about podcasting because, of course, Caroline is um, behind or one of the people behind the most recent... Um, podcast, true crime podcast mm. on the Australian, uh, Nowhere Child, about, of course, the disappearance of William Tyrrell. Mm. Um, so I had a talk to her about, because, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, but I find the whole true crime podcasting aspect of things quite fascinating. So I really was excited about discussing the process of it with her. And she is such a honest and generous soul that she has, you know, given us a full inside picture. And I think that um, it's really worth having a listen to. Caroline Overington is one of Australia's most successful writers and journalists. She has written 12 books, including the runaway bestseller, The One Who Got Away, and her most recent novel, The Ones You Trust, published by HarperCollins Australia in 2018. Her current project for The Australian is Nowhere Child, an investigative podcast exploring the case of William Tyrrell, a three-year-old boy who vanished while in state care. Welcome to the program, Caroline. Hello. Hello. It's so nice to have you here. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about your book publishing career first, and then we will get on to your um, your latest project. So just to give our readers a bit of background, our readers, our listeners a bit of background, um, can you tell us how your first book came to be published, you know, back in the eons of time? Yes, I can. I was working in New York City for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald as a foreign correspondent. Mm 
And at the time, when I left Australia, I had twins who weren't, who were, they were still to- toddlers, really. They weren't quite two years old, about 18 months old when I left. And they, we lived there until they were about five or six. And we had some very funny adventures, the twins um, growing up in Manhattan. And I mentioned it to a friend of mine um, who was in the book industry. And she said that she thought that that would make a terrific book. And it was around the time there were a couple of great books out about women who were traveling. So there was one about uh, Paris and there was another one about India, which was called Holy Cow from memory. And they thought, you know, we could do one from a young mum with a couple of lovely, funny twins in Manhattan. And so that became my first book. Okay, so... You know, your 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 job was as a journalist. When did you turn to writing novels? Well, my first novel wasn't published for some time after I had um, some books out already. So after the after I did my adventure in Manhattan, which, which was called Only in New York, I also wrote another non-fiction book, which was called Kickback, which was about the Australian Wheat Board scandal and the UN Oil for Food program. So it was quite sort of heavy going. And I I hadn't really turned my mind to the idea of writing novels yet. So that didn't come until later. So my first novel wasn't published until 2008, which would be, I think, a good three years um, after I returned from New York City. Okay. And so why did you, what what made you, like you you had written a lot of nonfiction, all of your work was in nonfiction. Why did you, why did you write that first novel? What made you, what drew you to that? I had I had been covering a, covering a lot of child welfare issues for the paper, um, in particular related to uh, foster care and out of home care, and I was very conscious of the fact that in the newspaper you can't always tell the whole truth. There's a lot of secrecy surrounding uh, anything to do with child welfare in Australia. The government departments that run it are sort of reflexively secretive. Um, there's almost always suppression orders in place when you try to cover the various courts that deal with matters involving children. And I had become quite frustrated by the sense of secrecy. And so I thought to myself, well, why don't you write a novel? And then you can bring up all the issues that you want to talk about. Um, but because it's fiction, you can't get in any trouble. Because when I say you can get in trouble covering child welfare in Australia, I mean, I really mean it. If you, um, if you were to breach any of the legislation, the penalties can be as high as a $200,000 fine or five years in prison. Wow. So they're not mucking around when they say that they don't want you to go near those areas. They don't want you to discuss those issues at all. There's always um, an immense amount of secrecy surrounding um, anything to do with children in Australia and there's very good reasons for that obviously because children are entitled to their privacy um, as they're growing up. That's why things like the children's court are closed. Um, but my frustration came out of cases where I'd, I'd covered cases where a child had been killed, where a child had been murdered. In fact, just one earlier this year I had to do um, in the coroner's court in New South Wales um, and they would go to their grave without any identity at all without a name just being called like baby r or baby x or even worse um they would be given a false name a name that they had never been known by their whole lives that their family hadn't been had never referred to them by their whole lives that's how they would go to their graves 
and also that was the certificates under which their their deaths were recorded. And I thought it was monstrously unfair. And also there was no logic to it. I mean, they're saying, oh, well, we need to do this to protect the victim. Well, the child in all of these cases was already dead. Mm. So, okay, so given given that, you, you know, you're immersed in that, you understand all the rules of that world, et cetera, and then you, you turn to writing works of fiction about this sort of area because your, 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 your novels, you know, psychological kind of thriller sorts of things, they, they feel as though they have been pulled from a true story. Um, so obviously your background in journalism and your immersion in those kinds of stories is there. Um, but how do you tiptoe through making sure that you that you don't pull facts into those stories even by mistake? Well, it doesn't really matter if you do, as long as okay. you don't identify anyone. Right. Um, and as long as, it, as long as you've fictionalised the case and the characters aren't real, then it, you can say whatever you like. And that's what's so freeing about it. And that's why I always think to myself that the fiction is often very much closer to life than uh, anything in non-fiction. I mean, I've had a number of friends who have published books over the years that have had to be pulped because people have objected to the content or there's been some sort of court case that's been called or there's been some sort of defamation problem. I mean, listeners will have heard journalists complain about um, freedom of speech and they probably don't care that much. They probably think that there's a great reason for it. But it it is, in fact, this is, in fact, um, one of the toughest democracies in the world for, for press freedom really the most basic things that you can't say anymore. And and it actually, it's about to hit the public too because just this year there was a case where a judge ruled that a, um, a series of uh, newspapers and, and media organisations could be held responsible for comments that were published on their Facebook pages. Mm. Now, even if they didn't know, they were there. So imagine that. So you've got a Facebook page and you go on there and you say something about your neighbours dog for example you know they how they could be that so cruel to let their dog bark all day you are now open for defamation whether you publish that or not whether that was published by one of your friends by your mother and it can cost you your house because defamation is not something that costs you a ten thousand dollar fine it's not like jaywalking they will take hundreds of thousands of dollars from you for an off-the-hand comment like that. It is a terrifying environment we live in. I feel like there's a novel brewing in that, Carolyn, just quietly. Well, I, I mean, defamation, I mean, defamation and um, suppression in Australia is a real problem. And it's not just a problem for um, journalists like at working at the ABC when the Australian Federal Police turn up with a warrant and start emptying their computers to find out their sources, which is something you would normally associate with North Korea or Russia. Mm. Not, not with a country like Australia. And in fact, recently at the UN, Amal Clooney, that's um, a human rights lawyer who works out of the uh, out of New York City, said that she regarded Australia as one of the worst countries in the world for people being able to speak their mind. Isn't that interesting? And yet, you know, so many Australians would not would not feel that way. They wouldn't understand the ramifications no, that, that, of what they're right, saying. Because, yeah. Yes, and they very rarely. They can't possibly know what they don't know, if that mm. makes sense. Yep. So you did get a bit of a glimpse of it this year because, um, for example, in the in the trial of George Pell, now most journalists in Australia knew that he had been found guilty of child sexual assault for months. 
before that that was public because there was a ban on saying so. Mm. And then, of course, it was published in some overseas media. I think the Washington Post published it and a couple of other organisations. And so people could find it on the internet. And they were ringing up like radio stations and ringing up TV stations and newspapers and saying, why aren't you publishing this? This is one of the most senior Catholics in the world who's been found guilty of child sexual assault. And they were being told, we can't publish it by law. Mm. And that's really quite frightening, isn't it? Mm. And also, I think in Melbourne, they got another taste of it with the whole Lawyer X scandal. So most, um, again, the Age newspaper and the Australian both understood that there was a lawyer who had been working as a police informant and that a number of prosecutions in, in Victoria may therefore be insecure. So there might be people who have been put in jail who will now be complaining about being in jail because their own lawyer was a police source. That was well known to journalists for a long, long time, as are many thousands of other things, Mm. but it couldn't be published. So obviously, you know, your background in journalism informs a lot of your fiction. Like it's, you know, and, and, and you're immersed in all of those things and all of those worlds and all of those secrets. When you write a novel um, and, you you know, you're fictionalising um, some of these things that you know, how far away from the truth do you have to get to be absolutely sure that you're in safe territory? Well, fiction is fiction. It, it, that's, it, you've, you've made it up out of your imagination. And, of mm. course, you are influenced by all of the things you see in the world around you. So many um, mysteries and so many um, uh, confounding stories around me all the time. And so I'm influenced by all of them. And there's a great and enormous sense of freedom, actually, in not having to worry, am I going to be hauled before a judge? Am I going to be hauled yeah. before a court? Is somebody going to complain? Is somebody going to, am I going to get into trouble somehow if I say this? Because that's my constant daily life, my constant daily life, especially this year, because I've been completely immersed in the disappearance of William Chill, a foster child. And there's so much suppression and so much secrecy surrounding that case, really to the detriment of finding him, which I think is the most scandalous thing. You know, so many secrets have kept us from finding him. And so I'm conscious every single day that I go to work, you can't say that, you can't say that, you can't say that. And that when you're writing fiction, it just feels so free. Do you think then that your fiction voice, like when, when we read Carolyn Overington, the novelist, do you think it's different to your the voice with which you write features or with which you tell stories in, in a non-fiction kind of way? Yes, because I don't feel like I'm wearing a harness. I okay. feel like I can just get out there and gallop. Okay. Um, as a novelist, are you are you a planner? Are you, or do you sort of like, as you say, you're kind of immersed in this stuff. There's all this swirling inspiration. Do you get the idea for this for the book, um, the novel, and then just run with it? I'm never short of an idea. <laughs> I've always got I've always got a million ideas that I, I always think to myself, gee, that'll make a great book. Sometimes even when I'm like just looking through um, stories that are sort of swirling around. I see little snippets of this and that, and I think, oh, gee, that'll make a good book. And I know a lot of writers are the same, actually. They they see a little snippet of something and then they spin it out into a novel, which is just great. But um, I don't always know. I, I sometimes know the ending, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. Okay. And other times I know the character, but I don't know what's going to happen exactly. And then often, because the, the particular the last three books that I've written have been sort of thrillers, you're not meant to guess the ending. And so I didn't really know the ending until I got there. And I hope that that means that you won't be able to guess. Okay. So you've continued to work in journalism, you know, in some very big jobs, even as you've written, 
you know, successful novels like page turners that, that have a huge following. Um, is there a reason that you've never turned to like the whole, I'm going to be a full-time novelist now? Yes, because I wouldn't be very good in my own company. I, I thrive on the company of other people. I love people and I love having conversations with them. And, and newspapers are a magnificent way to meet people from all walks of life because you're um, out interviewing people all the time, whether it be in sport or, or the arts or politics or crime. It's, it's such, it gives you such an incredible uh, introduction to the world. Um, you have no more than your notebook in your hand and you can just go up and ask people questions. And I also would get, um, I would get very lonely, I think, if, mm. I, if I just was writing novels. I need the um, stimulation. I know some other people who are novelists who, who only want to go to one event a week. You know, they, 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 they're quite introverted. Um, and so they, they're happy to sit at home and work during the day and perhaps just potter down and have a cup of coffee. And their idea of interaction is to sit in a cafe and work for a couple of hours. That's the only stimulation they need. And they might only go and see one movie a week or something. That, that wouldn't be me. I'm busy <laughs> all the time. And, and I, I love the company of people. So then the question has to be, how do you manage your time to fit all of the various projects in that you do? Like particularly given you also have a family, like I know your kids are, are, are a bit older now, but how have you done all this with, you know, with a family and, and a job basically? Well, I just like to be busy. I mean, I really like to be busy. I'm not very good at um, just sort of lying on the beach and um, getting a suntan or um, doing things where I, my mind sort of feels like porridge. I just, I feel like I, I really like being busy and I and the more things that are going on for me, the better. Um, I know a lot of women like that where you, sometimes, like, I agree, you can get to the point where you feel like your brain is fried because you're trying to deal with um, organising school books for your, for your kids <laughs> and, and going to an interview for your day job and your chapter edits have to be back to the editor by the weekend. And then, of course, you have all your, your time that you spend with your family and your loved ones. But I really like that pace. I mean, that suits me. And I feel that I would get a bit glum, I think, okay. if, if I wasn't busy. I sometimes have a day where I don't have anything to do. And I feel I walk around flapping my hands like a duck. I don't really know, I don't really know how to handle it. I find that image lovely. Um, all right, so let's switch gears a little bit. You mentioned the podcast that you're doing, which um, I have been listening to, and it's actually quite funny talking to you, having heard your voice. I mean, you know, we've met, obviously, but having heard your voice over and over and over on the podcast, now to hear it in my ear responding to my questions is actually quite funny. But um, you've moved to the podcast, which is a different way to tell a story, um, and it's also an incredibly intimate and engaging one. Like, as I said, I've, I feel like, you know, you're in my ear. That's very close. Um, what have been some of the challenges for you of moving to this style of, of format of story? Well, well, so many. There's so <laughs> many challenges. I, I would like to be really honest um, with you about it because it has been incredibly um, challenging. And, and I don't mind admitting that it was challenging. I had never done it before. I was very anxious and nervous about doing it well because well, a couple of things really plagued me about it. One is that William is missing, mm. and that's not a game, and that's not a joke, and that's not a mystery to, for, for people to solve. That is the reality of a small boy's life, either cut short in potentially horrendous circumstances, or he's being held somewhere, which is the belief of some people, 
um, which doesn't really even bear thinking about, does mm. it? And I thought this is not um, this is not entertainment, and so let's not let's not go and make a podcast which is like um, some sort of true crime mystery about something that's dated or mm. um, a case. It's it's a live investigation into a small boy and. I was also very, very worried and upset about compounding the suffering of people, which is very real, mm. that, that there are people who are suffering in a very real way because William is missing. Um, and in particular, um, obviously, his families. He has a foster family and he has a biological family. And so I, I made a pact with myself to just not lose sight of them, just never, ever lose sight of the fact that this is not a story to be told. This is not um, you're not you're not out there trying to entertain people. If you do this, you have to do it with a sense of immense responsibility, maybe bigger than any responsibility you've ever tried to shoulder before. And also, I felt like, is this even my business to be doing this? Because I mean, I feel people are going to get hurt because. Every time you do something like this, someone's going to say, oh, I bet it was this person, I bet it was that person. Well, it might not be. Mm. And that's really um, that's really difficult knowing that you're responsible for some of that commentary and there's a lot of speculation online and you're going to, you're going to send it buzzing like a beehive and who do you think you are doing that to people? So I felt all of that. And then there were more, um, you know, more, more trivial but still, um, I guess, things that I had to grapple with was I didn't think particularly in the beginning that I was very good at it. Um, I, I've tried to kind of comfort myself with this idea that, um, you know, people don't like women's voices. We all know that they don't like women's voices. They, they always get voted down on, on um, radio and on podcasts and things. But I was, you know, people were saying on the comments, God, I hate her voice. She speaks too slowly. She puts me to sleep. Australia's most boring the radar. This is just terrible. Just don't hold back, Australians should be No, they really don't. The Australians should be ashamed of this podcast. This is just terrible. Um, people saw a lot of bias in it both ways. Some people thought that it was hugely biased towards the foster parents or towards the biological parents. Like it was very hard to find a balance because emotions run so high in this case. There are some people who, you know, really have a vested interest in in the whole case. And and also, I mean, it's a podcast is not like going to get your hair cut or buying a dress or having a service. I understand that if you go to a restaurant and you have a terrible meal and you find a cockroach or whatever, you might go on there and leave a bad review because you paid for something and you haven't got what you wanted and it was a terrible experience. The podcast is free. You just listen to it. You know, I'm not being paid any extra to do it. It's just part of my job. And and if you don't like it, I understand. And I'm sorry. I wish you had liked it. But some people didn't. They really hated it. But then to go on there and be really... I've ne- I, I am not one of those people who has experienced a lot of hatred online. Um, I know that women do get that. And I, I, I have seen it. I've been witness to it. But I'm not someone who's experienced that previously. And it was hard. Mm. And so I tried to get better, but I was trying to get better as I was doing it. And I was conscious also that people who maybe tuned in early on dropped off and never went back to it and maybe didn't get a chance to see that I did get better because I think I did. I think my voice got better. Mm. I think I got better at telling the story. I think um, I got better at balancing all the 
confusion and turmoil in my own mind about why I was doing it and could I do it well. So, yes, it's been very, very challenging, very challenging. And I'm not convinced that I would ever do it again. I mean, we've just we've just put up the last episode yeah. and the, the strain was such that, I mean, if, if, we, if you could point to an actual public good and say, okay, well, that led to the discovery of a, a new witness or something, or if you could say, um, you know, it was rewarding for you in some other way that people had said, you know, that they felt they understood the foster care system more or so, then you might do it again. But, oh, I mean, I'm not really sure that I would go there again. So my question then would be, like, given all of those things, um, uh, you know, and and you said about the challenges of, of not hurting the families and not doing all that, why why did you come to this in the first place? Why? I, mean, I know this story is a is a is a story is one of those stories for you that you're you're very invested in. You won't, you know, you, you're obviously uh, you feel strongly about it. Is that the reason that you chose that you chose to be part of the podcast? Yes, because well, yes, because what happened was I was covering the inquest. So what had happened was William had been missing for about four years, mm. and his case was sent to the coroner. Now that's normally the last before the cold case files. Yep. They send it to the coroner's court and the coroner looks at all the evidence and then generally says, we don't know what happened. I mean, not always. Sometimes you can get a breakthrough at the coroner's court, but generally what happens is they say, we don't know what happened and they will declare William dead. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. Just before we get there, what went wrong here? Because a child cannot simply evaporate. Mm. And the idea that there are no witnesses and no evidence Nobody saw anything. Nobody heard anything. They have no suspects. I just thought, there's, there's something wrong here. That's not normal. Because even with Daniel Morecambe, the young boy who went missing in Queensland, people came forward and they said, yes, I saw him standing at the bus stop or yes, I think I saw a car going by or, you know, there was, there was something to grab hold of. Whereas this, there's just, it's just so mystifying. And when I went down to Kendall, so he disappeared from the country town of Kendall where he was visiting. And when I went there and I stood in the street and I just thought, this is surreal. This is, how can this happen? And I thought, I have to have a look at what, what went wrong. And whether it turns out to be a fault in the police investigation or maybe they searched for him, didn't search for him properly and that haven't found him. Maybe he got lost. Maybe there are witnesses that we could uncover. Maybe just another fresh set of eyes can't hurt. Mm. But at the same time, I realise that people are hurt by the constant scrutiny of the case. Um, police don't like to be um, hauled up to sort of say, you know, should you have established a cordon? Should you have established a crime scene? Well, they didn't establish a crime scene when William went missing, but they didn't for a very good reason. They didn't because they were really searching for him. They had hundreds of people running around looking for him, checking here and checking there, because their assumption was that he was missing, and that's totally normal to assume that he's lost. He's visiting there. He's only little. He's probably got lost. But then as a result, now we have no forensic evidence can be taken because of all the boots that trampled through there and all the cars that have come and gone and left without being... So it's very easy in hindsight for me to come along and say, well, you should have checked the boots of every car that left the street that day. It's only a small court. There can't be more than 12 of them. And the police are like, do you mind? We were trying to find a missing boy. We didn't know he'd been taken. So there's all that. It's 
messy and it's complicated and it's human and it's complex and it's it's torture. It's torture. And is that why you chose? Because the other interesting thing about this for me is, as someone who you know, your your in your investigative features, you know, are are, are awarded. You've won Walkleys. Why did you do a podcast and not a feature about you know that question that you had when you stood there in the middle of that street? Was it because you it was complicated and messy, and you felt you were going to need more space and time to do it? It was also because. Um, so I had done, I had written features about it, and mm-hmm. I had written I had written quite a lot about it actually. Yeah. But um, the Australian has been doing podcasts, yeah. I think, better than anyone else. Yeah. And we'd had huge success. Um, and when I say success, I mean real breakthroughs. With, for example, the Teacher's Pet, which yeah. was by my colleague and friend Hedley Thomas, and then also with another one called Who the Hell Is Hamish, which was about a fraud star, which was done by Greg Burrup, also a friend and colleague. And I thought, well, a missing child is something we would all love to see a breakthrough in. Definitely. And you don't necessarily kid yourself that you're going to be the one to find the breakthrough after, you know, 3,000 police haven't been able to. But you do hope that by doing what they did, bringing attention to it, getting people talking about it, getting police active on it, getting um, politicians engaged in it, you know, these are the kinds of things that can really make a difference. Um, so I thought, well, have a go. And, and even though you haven't done it before and, and you may not, it may not work, have a go. I always think people should at least try. Mm. Um, but as I said, I'm not sure that I, I, I'm not sure that I would, it was very draining and it was very, I was never entirely, I was, ne- I, I never entirely felt at ease. I always felt, and maybe that's good. I mean, maybe it's good to be always on your toes, that you're mm. conscious all the time of people listening and criticizing. Maybe it makes you better, because I do think I did got I got better as it went on, mm. and maybe that was why, because mm. I was conscious all the time. Well, I guess it's like anything, isn't it? Like you talked about, you know, you you write your novels without a plan in the sense that you you start with an idea and and then you work through it, and every time you do that, you get better at writing a novel, right? So this is a similar project. In the, but you, the thing with it is, and when I listen to the podcast and other podcasts along these lines, it, it always blows my mind from the perspective of the scope of the project. Like so many voices to manage, so many interviews, um, trying to work out a narrative arc or a structure to a case when you don't know what the end is, when you don't know how it's going to unfold, when new things come up along the way. I mean, how do you get your head around all that? Yeah, and more challenging than that, I mean, there was a bunch of stuff that came up that I did not expect as we were going, but I found even more challenging than that. So let's say, for example, see if you can solve this conundrum. So so the foster mother had told the inquiry that she saw two cars in the street on the morning of William's disappearance. Now, that's given as evidence, and so that's something that we can freely report. And the fact that no one else saw those cars in the street is also something we can freely report because that too has come up at the inquest. No one else saw those cars. But when you put that into a podcast, you know in your heart and your mind that people are going to start running around saying, well, how come nobody else saw them? Were they really there? What's going on there? And that has the potential to really hurt somebody. Mm. And so I thought to myself, well, is there an explanation for why nobody else saw those cars? Well, yes, there's a number of explanations. And so I had to then go looking for somebody who understood memory and who understood observation. And as it happens in Australia, we have really great people working at universities like in 
in forensic sciences and um, in psychological, uh, in psychology departments who could talk to me about how you could be at home in your house or you could, you could in fact see a child being abducted in front of you and not notice. And they were able to show me and demonstrate actual examples of that happening where they had set up um, tests where they had had a child abducted from some from a playground in front of 20 witnesses and then they went back and asked all the witnesses, did you see anything? And 19 of them said no. Mm. And because that's the way our brain works, we're not always focused on what's going on around us. We think we are, but we're not. The idea that you can tell me whether or not there was a car at the front of your house on Tuesday last week, I don't believe you can. Most people can't. Right. And so so then to go and find those people and to explain it, so you're not leaving someone hanging out there saying, I saw something and having everyone shout back, no, you didn't like in a cruel way. So because of the interactive aspect of it, you've, you've kind of got, you've got to kind of be thinking of the rebuttal and all sides of the story at all times. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I'm really quite like, like from the outset, as I said, really conscious of the fact that you could hurt somebody, Caroline. You could mm. hurt somebody by setting the hairs running after the wrong person. I mean, there was another witness who came forward who said that he saw William in the back of the car. That's, that, then a number of people have, have shouted at him like why didn't you call the police why didn't you call the police there's very good reasons why he didn't immediately go to go to police but it takes some time to explain them mm-hmm. and i didn't want to just be the kind of person that says this man who's now 80 years old who went out to his letterbox that day thought he saw a child with dressed in a spider-man suit in the back seat of the car and didn't bother to tell police mm-hmm. i wanted to explain properly what happened why he didn't immediately go to police how he ended up going to the police in the end, why he's so sure that that's what he saw when other people think, you know, maybe he's deluded, and that takes time. Mm. So given all of the – so the the final episode has has been released. Will you do further if other, you know, things come to light as as time goes on? Well, the inquest has been such a complete and total mess um, I've never, I've covered so many inquests in my life, I can't even count them all, and I've never seen one as bad as this. It's really terrible. It's been just plagued by closed court sessions and suppression orders and technolo- technology failings and um, witnesses being unavailable and all, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's just uh, to, to sit there and see the families in their distress and their trauma as they sit there day after day. And well, some days they would take like 20 minutes of evidence and then they would just close the court for the rest of the day and they don't even tell you why. And so, I mean, the grief of these people is real. It's raw. They're, they're, a child is missing. It's just terrible. And I, I'm, I'm not at all keen to head back to it, but, but what happened is they closed it, the whole inquest, didn't really give an explanation except that they're not ready to go on and they're not going to open it again until next March, which is seven months wow. of waiting around. So I'm going to wait and see how things look in March and and whether or not things you don't you never want to abandon a story never and it's not this the final word on William Till has not been spoken because I believe in my heart that we will find out what happened to him. I believe that. I really do. I believe I believed it about Daniel Morecambe. I just think the truth has legs. It has a way of standing there. When everything else has fallen away, when all of the politics and when all of the gossip and all of the, the stories and the false leads and the, it has fallen away, the truth 
stands there and it has a way of being seen and I and I've witnessed that a couple of times in the course of my career where I've been told that this case will never be solved and then it was solved and I believe that with William too. I have to say though it must be incredibly distressing for you as the person reporting on this as the you know obviously the not as distressing as it is for the families going through it but as the witness to all of these things how do you manage that as part of your daily life are you someone who like hits punching bags on a regular basis like what do you do (laughs) with that sort of stress level I I feel a sense of responsibility to to my profession and to the people who are actually suffering because the people who are actually suffering are William's families yeah. and in almost all the other cases that I've covered, it's the first responders. I yeah. keep my eye very, very clearly on police and paramedics, nurses, doctors and then you have a, a second ring of people who come in, SES, who search often through the night, through the dark. In in the case of William, they they walk through those forests through the night, calling out his name in wet, cold, hard conditions. And then you have the forensic scientists who come in and try to unravel the mystery. They are the people who have got real reason to be fraught with with the upset. And I have no reason to be. I'm just 10 steps back from there way back with readers and listeners who who can all we can do really is bear witness and try to do that as well as you can so i I don't kid myself that i've got a hard job there are i promise you people who have been dealing with this case who have been undercover who have been dealing with the worst kind of humans you know trying Mm. to crack pedophile rings they've got a hard job yeah they do have a hard job so I know that you are working on a book that is, uh, you know, like a companion book, I guess, to the podcast. When when will you be looking at releasing that? I don't know. A lot will de- a lot will depend on on what happens and and whether we feel comfortable, whether I feel comfortable that I can tell the story in a complete way. Right. Um, I don't want to just I don't want to just do a kind of who done it. Yeah. I really want to look at what went wrong and I really want to think about what it means in Australia to have another missing child. We're so haunted by them, by the Beaumonts and and Samantha Knight and these are the cases that they plague us as a nation. Mm. It it troubles us, the little boy lost. It's so important that that we, we... we don't let this become a case that just falls into the cold case, that we make sure we turn over every stone because there's more to be done and there's, and when I feel confident that I can properly honour him, I'll go. Okay. Um, and in the meantime, I believe your next project that, that we um, can expect to, to read is, the, um, is a new novel coming out next year. Is that no, right? No. The... the, the the William Tiller book, the book about the disappearance and and the and the investigation to the disappearance of William Tyrrell, will come out first because okay. that's all I think about. Okay. That's all I that's all I can concentrate on, and it's all I can think about. Trying to do a good job and not and not muck it up. Right. And so I had another novel that I was working on. I was almost complete, 
But I spoke to my publishers at HarperCollins and they agreed to push it into the distance. Right. So, it's, I mean, it's, it's, in, it's in a sort of process of editing at the moment, but they're quite happy to – they understand. They, yes. They're like, if you want to do this, if this has to be done now, yeah. if you need to concentrate on it, you do that, and we can publish the novel in 2020 or 21 or 22. It doesn't matter. We just don't want you to feel like you've got to rush it out when you really are so immersed in this. In a different That's story. That's the benefit yeah. of having a relationship with a publisher over nearly 10 years, which I have now with yeah. HarperCollins. I'm able to say to them, this is what I want to do. I, I remember very similar circumstances with when I was writing Last Woman Hanged about Louisa Collins, a real-life person who was executed for a crime of murder, and I became so immersed in her story and so outraged by the injustice of it that I couldn't do anything else. And I, and I said to them then, oh, can I push this other stuff away? And they said, yes, do it. And as it turned out, that book has been hugely successful in terms of um, bringing women's history alive and bringing the plight of women in the 19th century Australia alive. You know, the idea that we couldn't vote and that we couldn't vote, we, we had no representations in Parliament, you couldn't sit on juries, you know, bringing these things to life. And I often talk to girls' schools about that now and it's I'm so pleased that I took the time to do it and do it properly and not worry, oh, well, you've really got to finish your next novel. You know, they're expecting that. (laughs) You make a lot of money out of novels, but money can't be the reason you do it. Well, Carolyn Overington, it has been incredibly mind-blowingly interesting. Um, We are going to finish up with our usual last uh, question, which, of course, is your uh, top three tips for writers. So what do you have for our writers out there? Well, the first thing is write something, anything. It doesn't matter <laughs> what it is. Because I have met so many people, God love them. They often come up when I'm touring or doing events or whatever and they say, well, I'd love to write something, but I haven't started. And honestly, if you sit down in front of a screen and that cursor is blinking at you and you've got your cup of tea ready, it can be very daunting. So I always think write everything down that you can. And then my second tip is edit it very early the next day. So then don't worry what you've put down. You can look at it again the next day, but then my third tip is don't look at it for too long. So you (laughs) write in a huge slab and don't look at it, and then in the morning you get up and you look at it again and see if it's any good. If it's not, just get rid of it and start again. If it is, fiddle with it, but not for too long because otherwise you've wasted a day. And then you get on and you do it again. And I think that that kind of habit of just putting it down, putting it down, referring to it again and putting it down will get you into the habit of producing something before you know it. Like if you wrote a thousand words a day, by the end of the month, you would have half a book. So true. Is that how you work? Do you write a thousand words a day? If I have to, like if I have to, if I have to, I can. Yes. Other days I can write 10,000. Yeah. I mean, it just, you know, there are days when you're so motivated and I'm sure so many listeners will have that too, that it just flows out of you like honey. And then, of course, there are other days when it's much harder and you feel grateful for even one decent paragraph. So but true. you can't, you can't let any of that stop you. I mean, if you want to write something, you've got to write it. <laughs> And on that note, I think we will finish up. So thank you so much for your time. It's been real a real pleasure talking to you today and best of luck with all of your various projects that you are, you know, engaged in. Well, thank you so much for having me. 
This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week course in Freelance Writing Stage 1 is the fastest way to get there. Step by step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, approach editors, research and structure your article, plus interview skills, industry expectations and much more. You'll enjoy the convenience of learning online in just a couple of hours a week and have your own tutor to answer all your questions. Find out more at writercentre.com.au slash freelance. Caroline Overington, always such a great interview. That's awesome. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's always an interesting thing interviewing an interviewer. I, mm. I always find it a really, you know, interesting um, process. Uh, but she, look, she, as I said, I don't think you would come um, upon a more honest or generous interview yeah. than that one. And I think that, um, you know, I think the discomfort that she's felt with with the whole option of, of you know, as the journalist, as a storyteller, she's not often centre stage. And I think she has found that aspect of podcasting, which, of course, you know, is a very intimate form of of um, of, of storytelling yeah. of, of of anything. Um, I mean, look, look, you guys are sitting there right now with our voices in your ears. Mm. Uh, lucky you. Um, <laughs> and and you know, I think that that's something that um, is often overlooked. With it, it is a very intimate form of of broadcasting, and I think she's you know obviously learned a lot along the way from that. Um, and of course, just that notion of of also the you know, the, the responsibility she feels for with that story and for the people that are involved mm. in it, you know, she's, she's a, she does a great job, I think, and I, I take my hat off to her. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so we're almost the, at the end of episode 300. Al, what are you doing in the coming week? Well, I'm bracing myself, obviously, for the, um, you know, the parade the of parade, yes. Al and Al 300 entries. I'll be looking forward to that. Um, and I am, other than that, I don't know, I, I might have a glass of champagne or something just to so. celebrate our, the fact that we're still here. We should totally Not only that. are we still here, but I've been quite excited to see us on a few of those, you know, lists. and On iTunes, things, yeah. On iTunes We've been kicking a few goals there, which is lovely. And, yeah, so I, you know, I, I think I might wallow in, in our glory for five minutes and then go back to my day we'll just have we'll have a virtual champagne somehow yeah yes well I, I would also just like to say that you know podcasting is an you know intimate form of storytelling and when you put those airpods or those earbuds in your ears that is intro mission <laughs> yeah so there you go you just really had to have the last word on that didn't you <laughs> All right. Where do we find you online, Al? You will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And, of course, please do join us over at the Facebook community for all of our wonderful listeners. It's free to join. Just search for So You Want to be a writer podcast community and um and request to join we'd love to have you in there Alison and I hang out in there quite regularly thanks for listening everyone and we look forward to chatting to you again next time bye 
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>